I too. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen, then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. I think it's just as important that I read the title of this poem as I read the poem. Within two weeks, the African-American poet Ross Gay is mistaken for both the African-American poet Terence Hayes and the African-American poet Kyle Dargan, not one of whom looks anything like the others. If you think you know enough to say this poem is about good hair, I'll correct you and tell you it's about history, which is the blacksmith of our tongues, our eyes. Where you see misunderstanding, I see knuckles and teeth for sale in a storefront window. I see the waterlogged face of the 14-year-old boy. The bullet's imperceptible sizzle toward an unarmed man. And as you ask me to sign the book that is not mine, your gaze shifting between me and the author's photo, whispering, but that's not you? I do not feel sorry for you. No. I think only that when a man is a concept, he will tell you about the smell of smoke. He will tell you the distance between heartbreak and rage. This is from an April 23rd Facebook post by Kenny Wiley, a black man and lifelong Unitarian Universalist. I went to worship at All Souls Tulsa today. Bishop Carlton Pearson talked about, among many other things, the fact that some churches feel like gated communities. You feel like you don't know the security code, and if you don't know someone on the inside, there's no way to be welcomed in, he said. A lot of black UUs and other people of color feel this way about our faith. Northwoods UU, down near Houston, is 1.7 miles from the house we grew up in. Last September... I jogged over there in the evening and found some of my favorite musicians practicing at church. They saw me and waved me inside frantically. Another group in the church looked wary, though, as they didn't seem to recognize me. Northwoods is my version of the country song Red Dirt Road. I played there as a toddler. It's where we went after 9-11. I preached my first sermon there. My mom's memorial service was there. If any place in the world is home, it's there. Both my parents served as president of the church board, 
But until someone recognizes me, even my church home doesn't totally feel safe. Unitarian Universalism is changing. It's changing because it needs to. It's changing because a whole host of folks of color are tired of feeling like outsiders, of being made to feel like guests in a faith that we helped build. Remember that so many UUs of color carry stories like these. Stories of unwanted spotlight, of being ignored, or being told with words or with actions, we're not the right fit far beyond the last few weeks. When I think of the best I've seen of Unitarian Universalism, I think of courage, of joy in people of color spaces despite it all. And I think of people just showing up for one another. I think of the courage to stay at the table, to sit with discomfort instead of rushing through it. Unitarian Universalism is changing. We're being more honest about ourselves and our stories. Yet I have more faith in us than ever. Let's take courage and keep on working. Today, we join with 600 other Unitarian Universalist congregations in having a service that talks about white supremacy in ourselves and in our institutions. And there's just over 1,000 UU congregations in this country, on this continent, and so getting 600 to do anything is a minor miracle. So today, we answer the invitation of Aisha, we saw in video, and Kenny, whose words Dirk read, and so many others. And I have to tell you, I am scared. This is not a comfortable thing for me to delve into. Like many white people, especially white people of my generation, I was taught not to talk about race. By the time I was born, the civil rights movement is over, and everything was achieved, we were told. No one told me directly not to talk about race as far as I can remember, but I certainly learned, mostly through the discomfort of the white adults in my lives, that it was not to be discussed. So I know this is a particular white experience. I know that my peers of color, that people of color, had to start talking about race as soon as they could talk. Their elders had to talk with them, to help them understand how to navigate a culture of white supremacy in hopes of keeping them safe. I have friends who have to tell their black toddlers about how to behave in the supermarket because if they're the wild kids that toddlers are, they get accused of stealing and all kinds of other things. So that is the truth. And the problem of this white silence is that talk, not talking about something doesn't make it go away. It doesn't solve anything. And we know that things are not solved. We know that message that I remember 
hearing on every Martin Luther King Jr. Day in elementary school about how things were bad then but they're fine now is not the reality that we live in. And we need to talk about these things as a community. This needs to be a community where we talk about what is hard and what is important. Things like race, meaning, death, truth. So in that spirit, I have a story to offer. It's a hard story, and I like to share my stories from my life only after they're fully resolved, and this one isn't. It's vulnerable, and it's messy, and I think that's the only way to do this work. So to understand this story, you need to know that I am a white, upper-middle-class cisgender woman. I'm currently able-bodied, I am married to a man, and my husband and I have a son, a little white boy named DeForest. One day, about a year and a half ago, I was in my kitchen listening to National Public Radio, and there was a news feature about a story about a recent study about hiring discrimination. And if you all have a news diet like mine, you hear these stories pretty regularly where the researcher sends out a batch of batches of resumes to different job postings, and the only difference between them is that one has stereotypically white names and one has stereotypically black names. And the results of these studies always seem to be that the resumes that have the white names attached get a whole lot more phone calls than the ones with the black names attached. And because these studies are designed in the way that they're designed, we know that that's not because of qualifications or any other stories we might want to tell ourselves. Having a black-sounding name makes it harder to get an interview, to get a job, and so on. And so what made this story stand out for me from the similar stories is what the researcher said when she was interviewed. She listed some of the white-sounding names and black-sounding names, and as she listed the black-sounding names, she said, DeAndre, Deshaun, and names like that. And I immediately thought to myself, DeForest. I added my son's name to the list. And I'm going to step back from that moment and approach it from a couple different ways, because I think it has a lot to teach me. So the first thing was my immediate response in the moment there in my kitchen was, oh my God, what have I done? Will my son be able to get a job? Because this is his name. I didn't want anyone to accidentally think that my son is black. In 15 years, when he's submitting his first resumes or whatever the equivalent is in 15 years, he'll face will he face discrimination because his name fits that naming pattern? Have I disadvantaged him somehow? And it's hard to name this. I tell you that my first response to all this was that I feared someone might think my son is black and he would have disadvantages because of that. I worried that I had failed him in some way. And this is a real and messy story, and I want this to be a community where we can be our real and sometimes messy selves with one another, and so I'm going first. Because we all need to do this real and messy and vulnerable work if we are going to learn from one another, if we're going to be able to live a life of integrity. Because it doesn't come easy, integrity. 
It's something we have to work towards each and every day and notice things about ourselves that we don't always want to notice and try to work through them. And there's no way we can encourage one another on our journeys if we're not willing to name the stuff that feels pretty gross that lives inside all of us. So this story stirs up a mix of guilt and shame in me. It's uncomfortable. I went back and forth all week about if I wanted to name it. But 12-step programs tell us we're only as sick as our secrets. And I think there's some real truth there. So if you are a white person and you find yourself in that place of guilt or shame or in, uh, today or in other times we talk about race here or in other parts of your life, I invite you to notice it and try to hold it as lightly as you can. Think, huh, I wonder why this is what I'm feeling. How did I learn this response? Is there another way that I can feel? Sit with it. Reflect on it. Come talk to me or members of our anti-racism, anti-oppression, and multiculturalism committees about it. And if you do not feel guilt and shame around this stuff, that is just fine too. And I have to say I'm pretty jealous. So my first reaction to that radio story was fear and then recrimination. Have I done everything I can to make my child safe and successful? And I think everyone who cares for children asks themselves this question multiple times every day. But this was that, and it was different too, because the personal fear was at its heart, a fear that my child would lose opportunities because someone might think he wasn't white. I worried that I had jeopardized my son's privilege because of my naming choice. It's a thought rooted an idea of this world as highly competitive, a place of finite resources and opportunities. It's a thought rooted in wanting my son to maintain unfair advantages because of his race. It's, it's a thought rooted in the culture of white supremacy. It's not a thought rooted in our Unitarian Universalist values. And so here we are in that gap between what we say and what we do or those thoughts that come into us that don't even feel like ours but bubble up because of the culture we're embedded in, the water we're swimming in and can't even see. So here we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of all people. And one of the implications of that, as Aisha said in her video, is there is no such thing as other people's children. All children are ours. And when we live our values, we remember that. When we live our values, we work for the good of all children. And that's happening right now as members of our community volunteer in our religious education program. It happens when we, help to, when we all promise to raise the children in this community during our child dedication rituals, when we promise to learn with them and grow with them. We live our values when we send volunteers and books and money to support Lincoln Elementary or the Isaac Early Childhood Education Task Force and in so many other ways. And having all these examples helped me remember when I was so worried about maintaining my son's unfair advantage that there is another possibility. Thank you for that reminder. That is what we do here. Remind one another of what it means to live our values live lives of integrity, 
and close that gap between what we say we believe and what we actually do and think and how we are. The Reverend Karen Quinlan, a white woman who you all helped form as a minister, because she was your intern, writes, I'm learning true change happens only when we take the time and the risk of sitting with something hard. True change in the world is intimately related to our internal transformation, which is intimately related to our presence to ourselves. I think that's a powerful statement, and I think you all get to claim at least a little bit of credit for it. And so when that moment of listening to the radio and having kind of gross thoughts bubble up could have just been one moment, a passing thought and nothing more, I've chosen to sit with it and see what it has to teach me. Because we have to lean into this discomfort if we are going to develop new patterns and new ways of being. And that is hard and uncomfortable to do. But this is what I've learned. I learned and I remembered that when my husband and I named DeForest, we did not think about race at all. We, made no, we had no thought about what kind of assumptions people might make about that. We chose, him, chose to name him after my grandfather, DeForest, my beloved Grandpa D. And when we were thinking about the name DeForest, I spoke with friends who had unusual names about their experiences growing up about what it was like to have a name that you never found on the rack of keychains at the tourist site. I can see a lot of you, yeah. Because my name was always there. So I, and, I also, and what it was like to always have to spell out your name or have people not know how to say it. And, they, and people assured me that that was not such a terrible burden, that it was manageable. But I had no conversations, no thoughts about race. And the fact that it never crossed my mind is instructive, too. It's an example of white privilege. Aisha Hauser spoke about noticing the water that we're already swimming in. And often, those of us who are white, who are socialized as white, don't notice the oppression, the white supremacy, the racism in our world. We don't have to. We are fish who do not notice the water that they're swimming in because that's all they've ever known. So this Sunday calls us to notice and to keep noticing. So much of white privilege and the white supremacy culture that it, that it creates, that creates and perpetuates it, allows those of us who are socialized as white not to see these structures, not to see this oppression. John A. Powell writes, white people have the luxury of not having to think about race. That is a benefit of being white, of being part of the dominant group. Just like men don't have to think about gender, the system works for you, and you don't have to think about it. So that's why I put this image of the white supremacy culture iceberg on the cover of our order of service. I hope you've had a little bit of a chance to look at it and take, you, take it with you. So there are the overt pieces that are easy for us to see and identify, the part above the surface, and then the part that is below, that's covert, that's under the water. And so what does it take for us to surface more and more of that iceberg or see the water in which we're swimming or whatever metaphor works? So for me, other people's stories and my own moments of clarity help me notice that water. When do you see the water? One of the tools that's been really helpful to me is a piece 
by Peggy McIntosh, McIntosh. It's called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And in this text, she lists over 50 ways that white privilege manifests. It's a classic. It's published in the 80s. Perhaps some of you have read it, but it's so good, I keep going back and back and back to it. So the list that she has includes, I can choose bandages and flesh color and have them more or less match my skin tone. I can be late to a meeting and without having the lateness reflect on my race. And this one, which feels particularly relevant in our time. I can criticize our government and talk about how much I fear its policies and behavior without being seen as an outsider. This McIntosh text is classic, and I encourage you to look at it again if you have have already or pick it up for the first time. It's really, really helpful. So that one moment of listening to the radio taught me about my fear and my privilege. It can also teach us about structural injustice, the way white supremacy is perpetuated in systems. Because the conclusion of the study is not that everyone should have names that hold no clues about race. The conclusion is our system is broken, and it is broken in so many ways. That discrimination, whether conscious or not, is regularly and consistently hurting our siblings and spirit who are people of color, our fellow congregation members, and people all over the world. My ultimate lesson from that moment is not about my name choices for my child, but that we live in a culture that consistently hurts people of color, and that needs to change because that hurts all of us. We are intimately connected to one another, and working to dismantle the structures that we live in will enable all of us to be liberated. All of us are worse off because of white supremacy. And so that's why Aisha and Kenny and others have asked us to spend our Sunday on this topic Our UU siblings and spirit, who are people of color, have said we are not living our values. There is a mismatch between our words and our actions. At a recent gathering of Unitarian Universalist religious professionals of color, some people spoke about how they've been invited into the most prominent volunteer positions in our denomination, including serving on the UUA board but when they apply for equivalent paid positions, positions matching their skills and talents, they often make it to the final round of interviews only to be told again and again that they were not the right fit. This is not an isolated moment or two. This has happened again and again in our tradition. And this pattern stretches beyond UUA headquarters. Unitarian Universalist ministers and other professionals of color consistently have a harder time finding jobs in our congregations. And usually when they are called, ministers of color have a much shorter tenure than white ministers on average. And this is not a new problem. For generations, the Unitarian Universalist Association and its predecessor organizations have actively discouraged ministers of color and congregations created to serve ministers of color. It is not an accident that we are a predominantly white faith. If you want to learn more about this, I encourage you to read the books Black Pioneers in a White Denomination, which is in our library. 
and Darkening the Doorway. Both are by Mark Morrison Reed, who is a minister and a scholar of the black experience in Unitarian Universalism. And these stories are not unique to Unitarian Universalism. Most liberal institutions can tell similar stories about themselves, and they share similar histories. There's a long history of the ministers and other people of color who have not been welcomed in our congregations drifting quietly away after a series of disappointments. And that is not what happened this time. There were open letters, there were viral Facebook posts, there were analyses of hiring practices that held up that about 80% of the senior staff at the UUA are white, while 80% of the lowest paid staff are people of color. There was a call to live out the beautiful words we say we believe. And I'm grateful for these people, our you siblings in spirit, who have trusted us enough to share their truth and have faith in us that we can be transformed into a new way. And while some leadership at our denomination have, has welcomed this chance to do better, to learn and grow, and are sitting with this hard something and risking change, that's not the only response. Peter Morales, the UUA president, responded pretty poorly to these calls for a new way, calling the critics hysterical, which you should never call a woman hysterical. Just never. It never ends well. And so when people then were critical of his response, he resigned with three months left in his term. So we now have three interim co-presidents of the UUA, until the next president is elected at the General Assembly next month. And all of the presidential candidates are white women. And, there was a, and part of what grew out of all of this was the call to do real and important work to dismantle the patterns of white supremacy, to devote a Sunday to this topic, and to work beyond today. The calls asked us to use the words white supremacy. In their invitation, Aisha, Kenny, and others wrote, White supremacy is a provocative phrase as it conjures up images of hoods and mobs. Yet in 2017, actual white supremacists are not required in order to uphold white supremacist culture. Building a faith full of people who understand that key distinction is essential as we work toward a more just society in difficult political times. There is no one in white hoods making the hiring decisions at the UUA or in our congregations. And the patterns continue. I wish it could just say, oh, there's that one bad person with the hood and we get them out and it's fixed, but it's just so much more complicated than that. All of the covert pieces of white supremacy, everything below the surface of that iceberg, continue. It, can, it continues in part because of the cultural norms of white supremacy. And there's detailed information on this on your green insert, but these norms include perfectionism, the right to comfort, defensiveness, either or thinking, and power hoarding. Carolyn Heinemann prepared this handout for us all, and I'm deeply grateful. So I invite you to read it at some point. And these patterns are often what we talk about when we say someone is not the right fit, as they don't fit into this norm. I invite you all to join Carolyn for a conversation 
about this and other things that the service might have brought up after the service in L2. And I want us all to have this information so we can all start naming them because it's hard to see the water if you're a fish. And I hope we can start naming the water here and in other parts of our lives because I know I need other people to help me see the water. So I hope we can do that for one another. And how I wish I could close with a three-point plan or one simple trick to make this all work and to do these three things and white supremacy is dismantled by next Sunday. But as our, as our anti-racism, anti-oppression, and multiculturalism committee members remind me when I get impatient, no one has ever successfully dismantled institutional racism in, white, in America before. There is no quick fix. This is generational work. We will not live to see the end. It will not be fixed before my son is sending out those resumes in 15 years or so, but it could be better depending on the choices that we and so many others make. Because on this continent, racism, oppression, and white supremacy have had over 500 years to become part of our institutions, our communities, and the patterns in our minds. It won't be fixed quickly, but we can take up the work that we are being invited to do and make our policies and practices reflect our values. This is some of the most important work we can do. I'm going to close today with words from Reverend Joe Cherry, who serves a UU congregation in the Cleveland area. If we have any hope of transforming the world and changing ourselves, we must be bold enough to step into our discomfort, brave enough to be clumsy there, loving enough to forgive ourselves and others. So may we, as people of faith, be granted the, the strength to be so bold, so brave, and so loving. May it be so, and may we make it so. Amen.